Thanks so much, Matt. Um, please keep your Bibles open, page 1048. And we're going to come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we pray that you would um, open the eyes of our heart, that we would see and understand wonderful things in your Word, whether we've been Christians a long time or whether we're still looking in from the outside. Help us, Lord, to understand um, and to be changed by what you say to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, can you afford it? It's a question you ask pretty much every day, don't you? Certainly for kind of big one-off purchases, but also just for those kind of everyday expenditure. It all adds up, and we need to know what is the bottom line? What is it going to cost? We think about that question economically, but have we thought about that question spiritually? What is the cost of being a Christian? Some here today, you may be very aware of the price that you've paid to follow Jesus. And you may be wondering, is it worth it? You may be thinking, can I keep on paying out into the future? Others may be sort of spiritual uh, window shoppers, kind of looking in from the outside, uh, interested in the Christian faith, but, but not really sure of the price. If you were to become a Christian, what would it cost you? Well, Jesus has both sorts of people in his audience. He's just left a dinner party at the Pharisee's house. Do you remember that uh, last week? He's heading on to Jerusalem. He is surrounded uh, by great big crowds. And the story that he told at the dinner party uh, connects to the teaching that he shares on the road. Remember the dinner party? Many people uh, rejected God's invitation to the heavenly banquet. They all made their excuses. But what about those who say yes to the invitation? What about those who do decide to follow Jesus? What is it going to cost them? Well, Jesus doesn't hide the costs in the small print. He's very clear about what being a disciple is involves. And that is vital for us today to know. To be reminded of the costs is going to help us keep going as Christians. It's going to help us persevere when we think, I'm just not sure I can afford this anymore. And knowing the costs up front is going to help any here today who are still weighing it up, thinking, is it worth committing in the first place? I think um, in our passage today, there, there are four costs to consider as we contemplate uh, following Jesus. Uh, first of all, committing to Christ. Committing to Christ, verses 25-26. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, it is the sort of thing, isn't it, you would expect a deranged cult leader to say. But Jesus really is God's Messiah. He's God's long-promised saviour king. He's heading to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people. He's going to rise again to rule forever. Jesus truly deserves first place in our hearts. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't literally mean hate, as we use the word hate today. He can't say, love your neighbour only to follow it up with hate your family. It just wouldn't make sense, would it? No, Jesus is saying that everyone else, even our nearest and dearest, they must be loved less than him. 
But then I, I think that's not even quite right itself. Because we can't say we, live, we love Jesus this much, someone else this much, someone else this much, and so on. Because you can't put Jesus in a list. Jesus is too big for a list. Jesus is in a different category to all our other relationships. Jesus supersedes and is supreme over everything and everyone else. Now, Jesus puts it so provocatively to make his point crystal clear. Being his disciple means committing to Christ. Our relationship with him shapes every other relationship, even to the extent that connecting to him may involve disconnecting from others. Uh, if you were at um, Revive last year, which is the big um, co-mission festival, the network that we're part of as a church, you may remember, I think it was on Saturday night, hearing the very powerful testimony of a lady from Iran who'd become a Christian. Uh, she'd followed Jesus and um, her family wanted nothing to do with her anymore. You could repeat that story thousands and thousands of times, especially um, in the Muslim world, but in other cultures as well. It probably, probably feels less acute here in the West, where there is a, a kind of a more of a shrug-your-shoulders spiritual apathy. Uh, but that may change as our culture moves further and further away from kind of Christian heritage and where the idea of being a biblical evangelical Christian is no longer just something that is kind of nice, but it's something that is dangerous. An ideology that people say, oh, that doesn't belong in public. Maybe people begin to say it doesn't even belong in the private sphere. Following Jesus means making his standards our standards. It means making his priorities our priorities. We don't trade off his priorities against our priorities or his opinions against other people's opinions. We don't weigh up the costs of his approval versus other people's approval. We, we love him first and we face whatever comes from others next. And that is not just for the super keen. It's for every disciple. Just look at the verse again. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't saying that we've got to get this perfect all the time and that you can't be saved unless you somehow make Jesus absolutely 110% all the time. He can't be saying that. But he is saying that our wholehearted commitment to him must be the consistent direction of our lives. It is a practical thing. You can't follow Jesus if you're following someone else or, or if you're following your own desires or dreams. Jesus is the one we're learning from. Jesus is the master. The first and fundamental cost of being a Christian is very simple, committing to Christ. Which takes us naturally to the next price we need to pay. Uh, verse 27, just one verse, carrying your cross. Carrying your cross. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus began, if anyone comes to me, and now he says, whoever does not follow. So perhaps in the first verse, verse 26, he's suggesting starting off on this journey. And the next verse, verse 27, is kind of keeping going on the journey. If we've been Christians a while, this expression of taking up your cross is going to sound very familiar to us. But you know, it is even more shocking 
than hating your family. Because in the first century, only condemned criminals carried a cross. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. Only conquered peoples had to face it. It it was public humiliation. It was the most shameful method of execution ever devised. Carrying your cross, it shouted defeat and dishonor and death. And most shocking of all, according to Jesus, it shouts discipleship. Why is that? Well, because Jesus' disciples must be willing to suffer like Jesus suffered. There's a slightly dated uh, English expression. It reminds me of the sort of thing my grandmother would used to say, we all have our cross to bear. You heard of that? It's a kind of a stoical grin and bear it. I'm just going to get through this difficult situation kind of thing. Everyone has trials in life. You've just got to do your best. But that is not the kind of cross-carrying Jesus is talking about. Committing to Christ, being one of his disciples, means identifying with him, even identifying with his suffering. And Jesus didn't suffer randomly. Jesus suffered because he was rejected. And we must be prepared for the pain of rejection and persecution as well. That may come from our family, as Jesus has already suggested, but it can come from many other places as well. Think about the apostles The apostles were arrested, and um, they saw that as a sign of their genuine commitment to Jesus. In Acts 5, it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the religious government, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They rejoiced because they had proven that they had carried their cross. And Paul says that that is what every genuine Christian can expect as well. So a very famous verse, 1 Timothy 3. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A Christian who puts Christ first cannot expect suffering, sorry, cannot expect to avoid suffering like Christ. We don't know exactly what that suffering will look like. People may be actively hostile, passively hostile. People may be appalled at what we believe, opposed to how we live. And notice that the suffering will be different for each of us. Whoever does not carry their cross from different people in different settings, at different times, to different degrees, no one's cross is the same. No one's cross is easy to carry. It reminds me of this little proverb in chapter 14 of Proverbs. It says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. Especially the first half of that proverb, the heart knows its own bitterness. We each have to carry our own cross. Whoever does not carry their cross. Whatever suffering we face as individual Christians is is the suffering that Jesus says to you and me, you need to carry this. Wonderfully, he gives us brothers and sisters, doesn't he, to help us, to help together to carry the load. But we still have our own unique cross that we have to carry because we suffer like Jesus did. And there may be times when we think, this is too heavy, I don't want to carry this anymore. But carrying our cross is part of the price. We sometimes sing that song um, Doug was telling us the other week. It's written by an Indian guy called Sundar Singh, whose family rejected him. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
What's the cost? Well, being a Christian doesn't come cheap. It means committing to Christ, carrying your cross. And so thirdly, it needs to involve considering the cost, considering the cost. Jesus tells two stories to illustrate his point, and they, they come at it from slightly different angles. And um, it may be that the first story feels um, oddly, eerily familiar to us um, at the moment. Uh, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? But if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Um, it's the sort of tower that uh, a vineyard owner would build uh, to keep watch of his vineyard. And so it's like a security tower. It's intended to kind of help him watch over his property. It's a good and prudent, sensible endeavor. It's not an overnight flat pack project. It's a building with foundations. So can he afford it? Can he afford to see the project through? Careful, reasoned reflection is required before he even lays a brick. Because if he starts and cannot finish, he will be a laughing stock for miles around. Does he have enough cash in the bank? Following Jesus involves considering the cost, especially when we start out. And so I think that is particularly important for us today. If we're here today and we know we're not a Christian and we're considering it, looking in from the outside, if you're still window shopping, spiritual window shopping, the point of following Jesus is to finish. But it's not just a free ticket to heaven. You need to think carefully before you start. But it will be worth it, as the next story um, makes clear. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the, the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So notice the, the similarity between this story um, and the previous story. Th this king, he sits down and considers, just like the the tower builder sits down and estimates. But notice the difference. So the king, he's already started his project. He's already on the way to war, whereas the tower builder is figuring out, shall I get started? He's on his way to war when a decision is forced upon him. Suddenly this other king is coming and his army is twice the size. Can he face up to that army? What is it going to cost him to continue towards war? Well, probably, reading between the lines, certain defeat. So what is it going to cost him instead to sue for peace? Verse 33, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So maybe the king has got to give up his possessions, his status, his independence, his power. But that is preferable, isn't it, to being wiped out by a more powerful king. Some of Jesus' parables have a really clear kind of God character and then a really clear kind of this is you and me character. It's not quite like that here, but, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, face that we, to say that we face a similar choice to this first king. Are we going to ally ourselves with God, who is more powerful than us, or are we going to go to war against him? Following Jesus means considering the cost. We may, can, we may kind of kid ourselves. We're good at doing this. We're good at kidding ourselves and thinking, well, I could sort of stand up to God. I'm kind of God's equal. 
we're not. He is far more powerful than us. We need to count the cost of not suing for peace. Everything we have, our possessions, our privilege, our power, our performance, it all counts as nothing before him. Giving it up will be worth it because we get peace with God. Peace with God is what we were made for. Peace with God is what Jesus died for. So what have we got so far? Committing to Christ, carrying your cross, considering the cost, and all of those are vital for already and would-be disciples. So what happens if we do those three things? What is it going to look like to be his disciple in practice? What is the price tag on on that? Uh, Finally, and I'm not very happy with the alliteration here, but it's the best I could do. If you've got any better ideas, please please let me know afterwards. Um, Continuing to count. Um, Rich, could you move it on for me? Um, And I'll um, try to explain. Verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Um, Our English translation actually unhelpfully misses out a little word, therefore. So there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 34. So this little saying about salt isn't random. It is an implication of what Jesus has already said. It's, It's a proverb about how Jesus' disciples need to live practically. What does it mean, though? Well, salt in Jesus' day was used in all sorts of different ways, just like it is used in all sorts of different ways today. But salt wasn't like nice, neat, clean sodium chloride like you get on your kitchen table. Salt came from around the Dead Sea, unsurprisingly, and it was mixed with all sorts of impurities, and it was possible over time for it to degrade until eventually it became not salt. And... And so it didn't count as salt anymore. It may have looked like salt, but it didn't count as salt, and it was no longer useful. It was no longer useful as a fertilizer for the soil, because in those days they'd they'd put salt on the ground, and that could help the ground to retain water or to release minerals. It was no longer good for the manure heap, because apparently what they did is they put um, salt in cow dung, and that acted as a catalyst in the ovens. They used cow dung as as a fuel wasn't useful for either of those things. Unsalty salt was just good for nothing. Jesus is warning his disciples, don't be a good-for-nothing disciple. Continue to count. Be useful to him throughout your life. Salt was used in lots of ways as a fertilizer, as a catalyst. It was also used to flavor food, to preserve food. The Jews used it in their sacrifices. It was a symbol of judgment against enemies. Think about some... Lot's wife turned into a pit of salt. Christians, in many ways, are to be salty in all different sorts of ways. So, salt adds flavor to food. We add flavor to life. We draw the blessings of the world out for other people to enjoy. Um, Salt is a preservative. The presence of Christian people in the world is is something that preserves the world. It, It keeps the world from decay. We live God's way, not the corrupted way of sin. Salt was used by the Jews in their sacrifices. Our lives are sacrifices, living sacrifices to God. Salt was used as a symbol of judgment. Our existence as Christians is a symbol of judgment in the world. It's a symbol that that God is not going to leave the world just to go its own way forever, but that we can bring, um, and, and as a fertilizer and as a catalyst, we can bring new beginnings and hope and purpose to the world. We can only do those things if we stay salty, 
if we continue to count. Do you remember um, back in chapter 13, Jesus described the people of Israel as a fruitless fig tree, and he says, you're going to get cut down unless you bear fruit. And this little story of salt is meant to do the same sort of thing. Don't be a fruitless fig tree. Don't be unsalty salt. Wouldn't it be wonderful for the last day, Jesus says to us, here is a disciple who really counted. They really made a difference. Not just every now and then, not just when they started out, but all through life, wherever they went, whatever they did. So Jesus is inviting people to his heavenly banquets. Remember last week, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, eternal life. The most wonderful invitation you could ever receive. But Jesus loves us too much to kind of hide the costs of that in the small print. Large crowds are traveling around him. Many are associated with him. Plenty are contemplating giving their lives to him. But Jesus knows that not everyone is listening. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Pay attention, Jesus says. Pay attention at the start of the Christian life. Pay attention all the way through the Christian life. If you're still not sure you can afford paying the price through all the ups and downs of life, remember that Jesus doesn't hide the costs from you. That'll keep you going. If you're looking in from the outside thinking, is it worth being a Christian? Realize that it, that it does cost, but realize that it is worth it. Should we pray that God would help us to do and to keep on doing these things as we give our lives to him, committing to Christ, carrying your cross, considering the cost, continuing to count? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't kind of sugarcoat your invitation. You give a wonderful invitation, but you don't just tell us it's going to be a breeze. And please help us, Lord, to be committed to you 100%. Please help us to carry our cross, to be willing to suffer like you suffered. Help us, Lord, to consider the cost, to weigh it up, to keep on considering it day by day and realizing that it, that it does cost us, but it is worth it. And help us to count, help us to be salty, to be used by you in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.